Well, thank you so much for having me uh, with you. I'm uh, really pleased to be here. I've had opportunity for Stephen to uh, be a buddy of mine. We've had coffee a few times. I now count him to be my best friend in the whole world. I moved here uh, three years ago, still sort of struggling to uh, uh, you know, find our way uh, in making ourselves at home here. And he's been a great, uh, uh, wonderful discovery as a dialogue partner and a, and a good friend. So I'm really pleased that he uh, asked me to be here. Uh, if you'd really like to get to know me, you should probably check out my Facebook page where I, like an adolescent, give every thought that ever occurred to me on a moment's notice um, and post it there. Uh, Facebook is one of those places where you can really connect to a sort of um, amorphous kind of emotional mood of the country as people post and repost things that have been in the news lately. And I would, I would say if there was a, a theme to what you can see on Facebook uh, uh, recently, maybe the last several months, the theme would be rage. Um, there is more uh, sort of uh, Vesuvius-like outpourings of magma, magma level sort of uh, heat and fire from people about various issues, whether it's the election cycle, racial tension, all of the issues sort of facing uh, the country at the moment. And it's been a, a, a sort of, I've had to take a break. It's an outpouring of, of pure frustration uh, on, on uh, that medium. And so as I sort of encounter what is, tends to be some of the mood uh, that the country faces as it uh, is in a contentious election cycle, as it's dealing with all of the racial tension that, that has, uh, from the beginning of the inception of the country, been sort of tearing at seams, and, um, and then the retaliation against law officers that has sort of um, continued to foment and, and fuel this sort of anger, uh, I, I thought to myself, okay, I'm taking a break for a bit. Where do I turn to get some relief, some peace uh, from this sort of uh, atmosphere of rage? So of course I turn to the scriptures, uh, to divine wisdom, to, you know, the, the songs even, particularly, that you'd think would have the sort of mellifluous, tender soliloquies of the human heart uh, on display, uh, connecting to the warmth and the emotion of a person before God pouring himself out of the psalms. And there, of course, you read phrases like this, smash the teeth of the wicked in their mouths. Uh, you, you hear tender words like this, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. And of course, what we read this morning, the word of the Lord, uh, to bash the Babylonian brains out of those babies. Divine wisdom. God's word. The Psalms are full of vengeance, of unhindered and seemingly unhinged rage. And this appears all over the place. In fact, C.S. Lewis, in, in commenting on the psalm, said it seems that the Hebrews are better at cursing more bitterly than even the pagans. And he described some of these psalms, these imprecatory psalms, uh, as repugnant, as immoral, as childish, as devilish on, on first reading. And of course, this is the sort of thing that makes people look at the Bible and say, um, well, of course, this is Bronze Age wisdom. This is a barbaric, regressive, tribal cultures pouring out their vindictiveness towards their enemies. But I want to sort of focus on some of these psalms, particularly Psalm 137 this evening, to say, well, actually, perhaps the inclusion of these passages in the scriptures is actually profoundly wise. Perhaps it has some source of uh, redress or 
uh, relief for those of us who encounter this kind of rage in the culture that we experience right now, the things that are genuinely tearing uh, people apart. And that's just, you know, on the public political scene. Privately, each of us have our own um, sources of frustration and, and anger. And, and how are these scriptures a source of wisdom for us? I think you can see, at the very least, the Psalms show us the process of anger. And they show us how to pray that anger. And then they show us how in praying that anger, anger can actually be purified in us. So I want to cover those three things this morning. The process of anger, the or evening, sorry, I'm still stuck on this morning. Um, the the, the uh, prayer of, of anger and the purification of anger. Um, well, first, what, you know, what, what do we mean by anger? When you see this, this psalm unfold, I think you can see a certain process unfold with it in his expression of anger. And if you had to define uh, the, that, that emotion, I think you could say that anger is our passionate response to a perceived injustice that grows deeper with memory. Anger is a kind of inscribed memory of grief. And you can see that in this psalm, this is a communal lament where God's people are coming together and they are together remembering this source of tremendous grief and even mockery at their grief that is a way of sort of rehearsing their outrage at what's taken place among them. And that outrage, of course, was the captivity, captivity of Jerusalem. It's when their beloved home country was overrun and taken captive and enslaved by an invading force. And, and with that force came the death of their hopes, of their desires to be beacons of God's people, uh, His goodness, His righteousness, His glory to the world. It's, it's a, a sort of um, before their eyes crumbling and melting of their deepest desires to be who they were created to be before God, as that was wiped away before them. And, and the smoldering wreckage of Jerusalem wasn't enough. They had their captors mocking them, saying, sing your songs now of glory to God. And of course, it's easy to think about anger as a kind of um, passionate, unrighteous response to, to, to grief. But we shouldn't skip over the fact that anger is at its core, before it develops into rage, it is grief. It is the recognition that an injustice has been suffered. That we have in some ways been slighted, our dignity has been marred, our uh, in inherent uh, value has been trampled in some way, and that is a kind of grief, a kind of response to injustice, and this psalm shows this rehearsal of this memory, regurgitating, rehearsing the wrong done that is sort of the essence of, of anger. You can see that in, in one through three. But then this, as you think about wrongs done to you, griefs, uh, grief suffered by you, that, that you would rehearse things that you've encountered in your life, that have been unjust, unfair, that you've had to endure, as you regurgitate and remember that, tell that story in your head over and over and over again, um, what happens is a kind of re-victimization. And you can see that in verses four through six. There is something behind this question. How long can we sing? How will we sing in a foreign land the praises of God? Now that we've been removed from our place of blessing, the place we're supposed to show the world what it means to know and love God, how can we sing? And of course, what's behind that question is a kind of 
soaking in the innocence that one feels at the doing of wrong. It is a kind of rehearsing, how can I now praise God when I am the victim of this violence or injustice? And something interesting happens in that process. And as you think about maybe some of the angers, frustrations that you deal with in your own life, you'll realize that as you rehearse over and over again the wrongs being done to you, you somehow get washed more and more clean. You are more and more innocent as the person who wronged you becomes more and more evil. I mean, if anyone's married, you know this story. Have you ever rehearsed wrongs done to you by your spouse, and the more you tell it in your head, the kind of worse and more diabolical they get, and the more innocent, and how could you? I can't see how. The more innocent you get. And this becomes a virtual identity now. That I, I have not just suffered this wrong as an innocent. I am innocent. It becomes a kind of, a kind of identity, this, this outrage. Uh, Elie Wiesel uh, recently passed away. And he, of course, is known for his work on remembering the grievances of the Holocaust that we would never repeat these evils in human history again. And it, it was his sort of um, uh, driving philosophy in how to prevent these sorts of evils uh, was that memory was very important to preventing these sorts of evils. We need to constantly rehearse and remember what was done. But something that Miroslav Volf, who's a Croatian-born theologian, suffered under wartime horrors himself, realized was that in the Balkans, it was the very rehearsal of, our, of the wrongs done to us that made us feel so wrathful and vindictive towards our enemies. As we got more and more clean and innocent in the memories of these injustices, our enemies got more and more evil, and this is what actually, he said, justified the ongoing interminable war in that region. So memory can actually not just be a way of sort of um, preventatively remembering the wrong, it can actually be a way of ginning up the anger and fury that then results in the last part of the stage of, of anger, which is vengeance. So there's this memory that's regurgitated that gives birth to a kind of ongoing washing ourselves in our own innocence and, and, and seeing the other as more and more evil. And then that gives birth to a desire for vengeance, desire for punishment. And of course, um, that horrific passage about bashing the babies heads on the rocks was another way of saying, let what was done to us be done to them. And of course, this is a metaphor. Um, he's not, this is not a wish for infanticide. He's saying, if Babylon are like infants, let those infants be bashed on the rocks, just like we were assaulted. But it's a pretty ugly metaphor. I mean, it's a pretty horrific image. And so you can see this anger is kind of mixed, isn't it? It's, it's a, a desire for justice at wrongs done to us, but it's mixed with a desire to pour vengeance out on our enemies as we see ourselves as, as clean. It's sort of a desire for justice run amok. And so the question for you and I, as followers of Jesus, as you think about the angers in your own life, as you think of the outrages that we witness daily, um, flashing on the screen. What do we do with our anger? I mean, do we swallow it? Or do we pour it out on our enemies? I think the Bible's answer in this song 
And the wisdom of these songs is actually more sophisticated than either one of those things. What this says is that this anger that we experience at injustice is, it, it demands a response. It's in there. It's sort of a boiling kettle. And so suppressing it uh, doesn't work. It's, it's going to come out somewhere. Um, through our passive-aggressive behavior, through our snide comments, through our secret wishes uh, at the, the downfall of those who have hurt us, and even the kind of a smirk that we have at the downfall of those that we um, resent. There's no suppressing it, ultimately. But then we can't pour it out on our enemies either. So what do we do with it? And, and the scriptures say, the Psalms say, pray it. Pray it. And it's interesting, you'll notice that here, the prayer doesn't really begin until verse 7. Remember, O Lord, the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it to its foundations. This is really interesting. You know, he did not ask the Lord to judge Babylon. He didn't ask the Lord, he didn't say, he didn't, really didn't make any requests to the Lord in the first six verses. The only request in this whole psalm is remember. Remember, Lord. Remember what was done to me. You take account what was done to me. I just spent six verses rehearsing and going over how horrific what I went through was. But I, it's not enough that I would remember it. I want you to remember it. Even all this nasty business in verses 8 through 9 isn't really a request. He never asks God to do anything but remember. And this is a powerful thing. You see, because the Bible recognizes that our anger towards injustice is not just a therapeutic problem. It's not just something that we have to, it's just bad for us, it's bad for our health, it leads to, you know, um, heart disease. It's, it's actually, a, it's, it, it tracks with a real problem for God, which is injustice in this world. And so as we pour out our hearts before God saying, God, see the injustice that was done to me, I want you to see it. It's recognizing that an accounting must take place for the evils that was, that was done to us. But of course, when we ask God for that justice to be done, we also have mixed with that desire a desire for vengeance. And so when we bring it to God, we say, God, you sort out the difference. You know the difference between justice being done and my vindictive vengeance being poured out. So I will bring to you my mixed, fallen, broken desires for justice, and, I, and you be the one to repay. You do your work. You sort it out. So there's this, this wisdom, this uh, sophistication in the way the Bible says to handle our anger that says, don't just pack it like a musket inside of you as something that you're scared of. Because this, this, this not only is bad for you, it's going to be bad for other people. This is coming out of you. Either you will pick up the babies by the legs by yourself to do vengeance, whether it's in the imaginations of your heart or in your actions towards those who have wronged you. Either you'll carry that out in your heart or in real life, or you will come and release it and give it to me, and you will let me do the work of vengeance. I will repay. So what happens when we do that? What happens when we are able to bring our unedited, 
fury before God and say, this is what was done to me. Look, look at the wrong God. The psalm says what happens is actually your anger is purified. And when you bring it before God, you deal with two of the primary struggles that you and I have with anger. And that is the fear to acknowledge it because we're afraid it will consume us. I mean, look, some of you in your marriages, um, I, don't, I don't know you that well. I, mean, I haven't been digging through your trash. It sounds like I know more than I do. Um, but I'm guessing some of you in your marriages have long-standing conflicts that are unresolved. That some of you have experiences in childhood of deep wrongs done to you. And acknowledging this injustice, there is a fear among some who continue to sit on it, bottle it, stuff it. There is a fear that it will consume you, so you continue to hide it away, to pile it like coals inside of you. Because you're afraid it will consume you. And there's others that, that have a real problem raging, going off, your fuse being short, people getting the brunt of your frustration and anger. And the reason for that is you are afraid that if you don't do something, if you don't respond, nobody will. There's this fear that if, if I just entrust this to God, uh, when is he going to do something about it? When will he avenge what was done to me? as I sit back and wait, and those who have hurt me continue to go free doing their thing. And the answer to both of those things is the cross of Jesus Christ. As we pray and we bring our fury and our anger before God, we know that it will not consume us because it has consumed Him. It is the wrath that has fallen on Him that He has voluntarily absorbed the, 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 all the just penalty for all of the sin of this world, yours, mine, and those who have wronged us, fall on him. And on the cross, God identifies, he unites the victim and the offender in one party, Jesus Christ. It won't consume us because it has consumed him. And of course, in the resurrection of Jesus, we have the promise that all of those wrongs that have gone un dealt with, unconfessed, unacknowledged, for those who would not receive the mercy of God in the cross, justice is coming. Justice is coming. So Jesus Christ, he, he resolves the tension of the innocence and the guilty in his, his own person. Jesus Christ answers the hunger for justice, for vengeance, and for forgiveness. Miroslav Volf, uh, that, that Croatian theologian, said, through my memory of the passion, God can purify my memory of wrong suffered because my identity stems neither from the wrongdoing done to me, which would require the perpetual accusation of my wrongdoer, nor from my own false innocence, which would lead me to an illegitimate self-justification. Christ, Christ is the answer to all these prayers. So brothers and sisters, don't uh, stuff your anger. Um, don't hide it. Don't, don't tuck it away inside of you, never acknowledging that it exists. The griefs 
the injustices are real that you have suffered. Bring them to Christ. And don't, don't pour these out on those who, who would suffer your faulty, broken righteousness. Bring it to Christ. Vengeance is God's. He will repay. He's done it in Christ. He will do it in his second coming. Let's pray. Father God, in the bread and the wine, uh, in your suffering, your death, in your resurrection, in the glory of your kingdom, all wrongs are righted. All injustices are punished. No wrongdoer goes free. And yet in that you find a way to restore the guilty, to turn the guilty into the righteous through the healing blood of your Son. God, take from us our angers, take from us our wrath, and transform it into worship and gratitude as we lay them at the feet of Christ who suffered for us, for our oppressor, to make us one. In his name we pray.